Last week, if you were here, we, we discussed the uncertainty of belief. And we talked a bit about, uh, and we asked some pretty challenging questions that got people talking for a bit, but we talked about how belief and certainty can kind of be different things and how it's important that we understand belief in the context of the other. That until we can see ourselves in the other, then it's likely that we cannot help but continue to form Jesus into our own image rather than being transformed by and conformed to him. And so this week, we're going to continue that conversation around belief. Um, but I want to talk and I want us to discuss how it is that we frame belief. Belief is, is often understood in the context of right and wrong. And it's kind of what I would call the rules, essentially, of belief. And so right and wrong, or the rules of belief, are often framed not so much in what to do, but what not to do. When, when we look at the, the Ten Commandments, uh, they're pre predominantly framed as do not, or you shall not. You shall have no other gods. You shall not kill. You shall not uh, steal. You shall not commit adultery. And so when we talk about the rules of belief, when we discuss it, when we question it, when, when we challenge these things that, uh, or even, you know, seek to dig into them um, and possibly question whether some of the things that we believe are right and wrong, there's, there's a phrase that often gets invoked. And I don't know if you've been in many theological conversations. Um, I've just taken a few days off Facebook because I just need a moment to myself. But um, uh, it's a phrase, you may have heard it, and the phrase is slippery slope. It's, it's a common phrase that's kind of bandied about, often in theological conversation, and it's often thrown at people uh, to say, you're on a slippery slope there. The, the implication being that the moment that you move away from literal biblical interpretation, you're kind of on this slope of liberalism, and you'll end up sliding down into some kind of crevasse with the likes of people who have deemed to kind of go that way. So people like Rob Bell. Um, and so you're either kind of fixed to this slope of rigid morality, uh, or you're deemed to be sliding down the mountain with new atheists or, uh, and kind of maybe losing your salvation. There's kind of this very either or thing that happens in theological conversations. And so if you're not drawing enough lines, if you're not black and white enough, if you dare explore complexity and nuance, if, if you're pushing the boundaries a bit too much, then you often get accused of being on a slippery slope. And if you slip too far down that slope, and it's purely, you know, it's not a physical slope, um, then occasionally you can be at risk of uh, getting the H word thrown at you, um, which is heretic. Um, unless you kind of repent of that and you're very clear that you didn't really mean what you were saying you meant. And so I kind of I want to dig into that a little bit and, and I want to do it through a passage um, that is famously or infamously known as repent or perish. Uh, and it's in Luke chapter 13 from verses 1 to uh, 9. Uh, and as confronting as repent or perish sounds, it's actually a great text to kind of explore when we consider the rules of belief and how we might actually frame belief. And so I'm just going to read a bit of it to you. Uh, it starts like this. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, 
do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Let's just pause there for a moment. So Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He's, he's hanging out with people. And as he's in the process of hanging out with people, he's, he's told of the murder of a number of Galileans by uh, the governor, by Pilate, and how these Galileans suffered a horrible and sacrilegious death. And so Jesus' immediate response that we read here is essentially to kind of quash any suggestion of superstition. He, he wants to remove any thought of kind of invoking the retribution of God. And he's clearly stating that just because the Galileans died in this horrific way, it doesn't mean that they're actually any worse than anyone else. So his position is clear. The nature of their death does not make them especially bad people. And then he goes on to support this position uh, by drawing a similar comparison with an incident that must have happened around that time in which 18 people died when a tower fell on them. And, and he clearly states that they're no more guilty than anyone else. Although you have to wonder whether the architect and the builder might have been implicated in that somehow. <coughs> however, however, he then goes on to make an interesting statement in both instances. He, he says, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, such a statement is reminiscent of fire and brimstone preaching, it, it, repent or perish. And no doubt it's a phrase that many a preacher has invoked when threatening people with, with eternal damnation. Entire ministries, entire doctrines have formed around this statement, repent or perish. But if we actually look at that phrase, the word here that is used for repent in the Greek is metanoia, which means turn, means to turn, turn from something to something else. And the word used for perish pretty much means just that. It means to lose oneself. It means to lose your life. Repent or perish, turn or lose. So turn from what and lose what? what? What is Jesus talking about here? Well, thankfully, he doesn't just leave it there. The, we, we get more in Luke and he actually contextualizes what he's saying in the form of a parable. I'm going to read that parable now from verse 6. It says this, A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Repent or perish, turn or lose, fig tree without fruit. How do we read this? Well, essentially the parable has three characters. There's a man who owns a vineyard, yes, a caretaker and a fig tree. <laughs> what does the vineyard owner go looking for? Fruit. fruit, yeah, or figs, fruit. What does he find? A tree without fruit. Why does he want fruit? Well, likely probably one of two reasons. Either he wants to harvest the fruit and eat it or he wants to harvest the fruit and give it to someone else or, or sell it. Regardless, 
we kind of get the sense that he wants to harvest the fruit. What is a fig tree designed to do? The simple answer is grow fruit. But I think that's actually a reductive answer because fig trees, like people, don't necessarily live in isolation. And so the fruit doesn't purely exist for its own purpose. The fruit exists for the purpose of life. The fruit exists for the purpose of feeding people, to, to feed other creatures, to, to fall to the ground, and if it falls to the ground, to bear seed so that more trees can grow. But it's pretty clear that the only thing the owner of the vineyard is interested in is whether the tree is bearing fruit or not. And so that phrase, repent or perish, turn or lose, becomes bear fruit or be removed. The purpose of life, I hope we know this, is not rules. But if I'm honest, I like rules. They can make life really simple. Uh, they can help us know where we stand. They can help us know who is in and who is out. Who is out. They can let us know who's the winner and who's the loser. They can let us know and, and help us to form tribes. But we see throughout Scripture, time and time again, that Jesus constantly challenges this focus and thinking. The Pharisees consistently want to make it all about the rules. They're constantly querying Jesus around issues of law and issues of belief. And Jesus frequently and consistently reframes it back to them in the context of fruit. And we read conversations where Jesus says things such as, you're worried about my disciples picking wheat and eating it on the Sabbath. <coughs> really? Don't you think God wants to feed his children? The Sabbath was made for for people, not people for the Sabbath. He says stuff like, are you trying to tell me that if uh, one of your livestock fell in a ditch on the Sabbath, you're not going to do every single thing in your power to pull it out of that ditch? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Do good on the Sabbath. The heart of what Jesus is saying is stop focusing on the rule and start focusing on the fruit. Rules never fed anyone, but fruit does. And so the question that I would pose to you is, what is God's design for your life? Who has he purposed you to be? Are you bearing fruit? And what should that fruit be? Repent or perish, turn or lose, bear fruit or be removed. Turning is essentially about a reorientation around the kingdom of God, turning from pride, turning from arrogance, turning from exclusion, turning away from uh, forming Jesus into our own image, and turning to faith, turning to hope, turning to love, turning to humility, turning to inclusion, turning to understanding the fullness of who Jesus is uh, and, and who he is in and for our lives. Uh, bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so, if our rules are preventing people from bearing fruit, if our rules are excluding people, if they're excluding the poor, if they're excluding the oppressed, if they're excluding the marginalised, then I think we need to tear down the rules and possibly throw them out. Last year, um, some of you may know, our eldest daughter got married. 
I was the father of the bride for the first time and uh, not a lot went to plan and I take no responsibility for any of that whatsoever. Um, the wedding almost got completely rained out in, in the hinterland of northern New South Wales. It was an outdoor wedding. My dad rolled his car. Uh, cars got bogged. People, people slipped over in the mud. I slipped over in my suit. Um, but, but it was actually a beautiful and memorable day. And through the process of being father of the bride, I kind of developed partly a deeper um, appreciation for contingency planning, but um, <laughs> mostly, mostly a deeper understanding of the fruit of belief and our role as Christian leaders, and we're all Christian leaders. My role as father of the bride was not that difficult. I paid for a few things, I mostly did what I was told, I, I helped people to feel welcome and valued, uh, I made sure people had food and drink, uh, I spoke words of encouragement and celebration, and that was kind of pretty much the extent of it, except the most important role and the greatest responsibility that I had was to walk my daughter down the aisle and place her hand in the hand of her life partner. And I think as leaders, as Christians, that essentially our role is the same. That our role is to walk alongside people. Our role is to very lovingly and deliberately uh, walk alongside them, to, to carry people if we need to, to, to equip them, to encourage them. And as far as the bride, as I said, there were a lot of things that were out of my control. I can't control the weather. I can't control how well or poorly my dad drives. I can't, I can't predict... Maybe I could have, but I, I don't feel like I could have predicted the need for gumboots when the weather had been fine for weeks in the lead-up. Um, and I'm not Jesus. You're not Jesus. We're not Jesus. We need to be more like Jesus. But that's very different to taking his place. And I think that often when, when we focus on the rules that, that we are want to make that mistake. We, we, we carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. We, we feel responsible for people. We feel responsible for their healing and we feel responsible for, for their salvation and we feel responsible for growing the church and we feel responsible for, for convincing people of how they should live their lives and, and we feel like we need to be the judge. But none of that's actually our responsibility. You know, repentance is radical. It's a massive change. It's about turning from one direction, pursuing one course of action to pursuing something completely different. But I would suggest that this pursuit is not about rules. When we make it about rules, I think we miss the point. I think it's about fruit. <coughs> and so I don't need to ask the question, are people following the rules? The, the question that I need to ask is, how does the fruit of my life help other people to bear fruit in their life? How do we love each other and love each other in such a way that it leads them to Jesus, that they find Jesus and that in the process of that, they bear fruit? Why don't you pray with me and then we're going to get into the conversation. Jesus, I thank you that we can turn to you. And I pray that you would give us a deeper revelation for our own lives of what you want us to turn from and to. May we bear more fruit, fruit that is evident in our lives and, and that is then evident to other people. 
Cause that fruit, Lord, to flourish such that the lives of the people around us are blessed. I pray that uh, you would walk with us this week and that we would be frequently reminded that uh, it's not our responsibility to do anything other than to follow you and in the process of following you to walk alongside other people in turn. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together. Amen. Amen.